This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the title of the talk today is The Voice from the Heart on the Backlash to Reconciliation. Um, no, and uh, as I give this talk, um, there's no disrespect intended to any people who voted no. People have all kinds of different reasons for voting no. I'm just going to focus on one particular one today. When I give Dharma talks, I usually give them because there's something I want to clarify for myself. So most of the talks I give are kind of my own kind of exploration and I share them with you. Um, you don't necessarily always have to agree with me, of course. Um, And uh, there's some things I'm going to go over today, which I deliberately did to remind myself of some things. So, for those of you who know some of the truths of Australian history. Um, that line that we just chanted in the, in the four great bows, uh, it says, greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly. I think um, when it comes to any situation in the world which is really difficult, where violence is happening especially, um, it's good to think that it's not people who are the problem, it's greed, hatred and ignorance which is the enemy. And, um, and unfortunately greed, hatred and ignorance rises endlessly from the beginning of human civilization to today. Who knows when it will come to an end. But that's the samsara for you. So I'm going to just start off by uh, reading a voice from the heart. Um, as many of you know, with the referendum last weekend, which lost by 60% to 40% on a yes and simple yes and no. And the statement from the heart, I will just like to read it out again. The Uluru statement from the heart. We gathered at 2017 national conference from all points of the southern sky to make a statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture, from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remained attached thereto, 
and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the crown. How could it be otherwise? The peoples possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years. With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So, some background to the heart and I think probably everybody in this room knows the background, but it doesn't do us any harm to go over it. And obviously I can't, can't cover everything, so it'll just be a brief commentary. So background, starting with the um, invasion and colonization and the declaration of terra nullius, meaning nobody's land. In legal terms, meaning land over which no previous sovereignty has been exercised, exercised. We had um, Cook, Cook's Endeavour sailing up the East Coast in 1770. And he had some secret instructions leading to the question, did Cook's claim of possession dispossess the resident indigenous nations? Many commentators have believed that it did. Cook's secret instructions, 30th of July, 1768, are frequently referred to. They included 
an injunction. Quote, you are also with the consent of the natives, with the consent of the natives, I repeat, to take possession of convenient situations in the name of the king of Britain. Or if you find the country uninhabited, take possession for his majesty by setting up proper marks and inscriptions as first discoverers and possessors. Apparently he didn't leave proper marks and inscriptions, which leaves us with the question, did Cook willfully behave as though Eastern Australia was uninhabited when he knew full well that it wasn't? That's a quote from Henry Reynolds' book on truth-telling. An Australian historian. Then we have the arrival of the first fleet in January 1788. Significantly, the instructions about gaining consent of the natives to take possession was conveniently not included in the commission given to Arthur Philip. So, why was Philip not instructed to seek the consent of the natives at a location convenient for a penal settlement? We don't have enough evidence to be certain about the discussions that preceded the decision to send the first fleet to the far end of the world. And there was often, there was contemporary jurisprudence of the time which acknowledged the local indigenous peoples in their right uh, to the land. So it wasn't as if um, this was um, something prior to that kind of notion. Henry Reynolds and other Australian historians have documented what were known as the Frontier Wars. And, uh, and also we know all about the massacres that followed colonization. Then we have the period of protection and segregation from 1890 to 1950. So indigenous survivors of frontier conflict were moved onto reserves or missions. And from the end of the 19th century, various state and territory laws were put in place to control relations between Aboriginal people and other Australians. So under these laws, protectors, protection boards and native affairs departments segregated and controlled a large part of the Aboriginal population. It has been estimated that the Aboriginal population during the 1920s had fallen to only about 60,000 from perhaps 300,000 or even 1 million people in 1758. Following the end of the Second World War, we had the proclamation of human rights laws and we had the Convention on Genocide. So genocide was only a notion which became into the law following the Second World War. So the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, 1951, defined genocide as any of the following acts, committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. As such, killing members of the group, 
causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Also, if you examine Australian history, you can see that the brutality of ongoing invasion and colonization fits in this definition of genocide in several ways. Also, we have the intentional eradication of the language and culture of First Nations people. At the time of invasion and colonization, there were at least 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages spoken across the continent. Many languages were lost because up until the 1970s, government policies banned and discouraged Aboriginal people from speaking their language. Our local Gambania people were prohibited from speaking their language, I think, into the 1970s. The spirituality of our Aboriginal people was also seen as something to be uh, eradicated. They, uh, it was seen as being animism, which was really bad, and uh, therefore not Christian. Sadly, the depiction of our First Nations indigenous spirituality is still being demonized by some churches even today, including during the campaign, where the statement from the heart leaders was seen as engaging in rebelliousness and advocating animism, maybe even talking about Mother Nature. And not all Christian churches certainly took that line. Certainly some of the evangelical churches did and all on YouTube, you can hear them. And uh, it's, uh, it's still going on today. Unfortunately, and quite terribly. Um, okay, that's all the bad stuff. Then we had steps towards reconciliation and truth telling. Let's start with the 1967 referendum. Two small changes to amend the constitution were carried with about 90% support. One made it possible to count Indigenous Australians in the national census. And the other uh, gave the federal government the power to become engaged in Aboriginal affairs, which hitherto had been only a state government preserved. And in the 1970s, we had the land rights movement. And many of you are all familiar with Paul Kelly's and uh, I forget the name of the Aboriginal man who called Carmody, I think, who um, wrote Live From Little Things, Big Things Grow, the story of Vincent Lingari. And in August 1975, Prime Minister Gough Whitman returned a small portion of Gurindji land to the traditional owners when he poured the sand through the hands. We had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody from 1997 to 1991 during the Hawke government. In all, there were 339 recommendations made in the report, including one, imprisonment should only occur as a last resort. A last resort. Better collaboration with Aboriginal communities. Three, the initiation of a process of reconciliation between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians. So people who worked in the public sector, in the uh, 
early 1990s, we remember the movement and the reconciliation, we were having reconciliation circles and all that kind of thing was happening. Uh, for every death in custody in the future, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal should be subject to, quote, rigorous and accountable investigations and a comprehensive coronial inquiry, end of quote, which had not been the case with some of the deaths identified for the Royal Commission. Then we had Eddie Marbo and the overturning of Terra Nullius, yeah. The High Court in 1992, we all saw that as a wonderful, significant step in the positive direction towards reconciliation. That particular judgment held that native title existed for all Indigenous people in Australia prior to the establishment of the British colony of New South Wales in 1788. Then we had the Bring Them Home report by the our Australian Human Rights Commission in 1997. And quote from the report by our own Human Rights Commission, the Australian practice of Indigenous child removal involved both systematic racial discrimination and genocide as defined by international law. Yet it continued to be practiced as official policy long after being clearly prohibited by treaties to which Australia had voluntarily subscribed. And then in 2008, we had the apology from Kevin Watt and Stolen Generations. So why I voted yes? Well, it, it seemed a pretty simple thing to me. It didn't seem that complicated. Although in retrospect, I think, I think the yes campaign, I think underestimated the radicalness of the proposal in many ways, given conservativeness of Australian culture. So I voted, rest, re, I voted yes for recognition um, in the constitution of First Nations people. And I voted yes for the right to consultation to be enshrined in the constitution, an acknowledgement of the recognition of invasion, colonization, and the subsequent powerlessness of First Nations people. So there have been many explanations as to the reason why the referendum lost. We can't go into all of them. Of course, we have racism, which can be explicit and implicit. Probably very few people we know who are explicitly racist. But implicit racism is, is fairly uh, difficult to detect for many people, because sometimes implicit racism is known as institutional racism, cultural racism. That is the uh, dominant culture, um, basically, excludes uh, minority cultures. Um, other explanations were, of course, misinformation, um, people fearing loss of their homes and things like that, um, cost of living, people were more concerned with the cost of living, lack of information, uh, the constitution is sacred, etc. However, the one I want to focus on, in my view, is probably the main reason for the defeat of the referendum. I think many voters identified with the, uh, the following uh, sentiments. So I'm just going to play a song that I actually quite love the melody of. But when you actually analyse the lyrics, it's very interesting. Um, 
I came from the dream time, from the dusty red soil plains. I am the ancient heart. It's the glute. Bye. 
So I'm sure, you know, when the Seekers wrote that song, their intentions were good. And, you know, it's a very kind of rousing song. You know, this, um, and I hadn't actually thought about it very much <laughs> until after the referendum, because that song's been played on the um, ABC for years. And uh, some people even said that should be our national anthem. Um, so I've got a few things I wrote down about it, but anybody like to sort of come in and um, question the lyrics of that song in some way? That's, um, that's great. So, So it presents a very romanticized picture of Australian history. I mean, the word I tend to use is whitewashing of Australian history. There's no mention of invasion or colonization, it's just the tall ships are arriving. And also, there's a, a historian called Christopher Reynolds, who worked in the, the Senate in America, who put out a book on Australian history not long ago, who basically argues that um, thing for the people, for you know, British people to come and civilize the Aboriginal people. Um, um, so that this is not um, something which is, this notion of the contestation of Australian history is continuing to continue. Yeah, I was actually campaign didn't use this song for the campaign. Maybe they maybe they tried and the seekers said no, I don't know. What about the chorus then? The rousing chorus. We are one, but we are many. Well, that's true. We are one, we are many, because this is a very, this fits with Zen Buddhism. <laughs> but we are one, we are many, because from and from all the lands on earth we come. So it equalizes everything out. We'll share a dream and sing with one voice. So it's this, this notion of one dream and one voice that we all share. And uh, I am, you are, we are Australian. This was a theme for me when I talked to people, came out so much with the people who were voting, we were all Australians. And uh, then we had this notion of division, that the, <laughs> the, uh, the voice to, from the heart was all about division. And, uh, and of course, 
with the kind of liberal ideology that presented in that song. You can understand how people get taken away by that kind of notion. So we had this narrative of division, whitewashing of our history. Um, and it's, it's, and we, we, now we have a backlash, you know, we have um, people who, and I've got nothing against Christianity, I love New Testament and Christ, and you know, it's beautiful. But unfortunately, um, many of the people who, like Tony Abbott, who's Catholic, and, um, you know, he, talk, he, he labels this kind of Aboriginal leadership as, as basically separation politics, you know, or sometimes they would use the name identity politics. But, um, so Tony Abbott wrote an article in the Australian last Friday. He said, um, the vote, um, he said, respecting the people's vote, that is the vote in the referendum to court Abbott, abandoning or at least scaling back recent concessions to separatism, including flying the Aboriginal flag co-equally with the national one. This is Abbott's words, as if Australia is a country of two nations. And the routine acknowledgement of country by all speakers at official events, as if those ancestry here, as if those whose ancestry stretches beyond 1788 are more Australian than anybody else. So we're getting this incredible backlash now. Not only are we, is reconciliation that in the war, it's backlash. We had the National Party in Queensland pull out of the, the treaty that they had negotiated, which they agreed to six months ago. People calling for another old commission into sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities. Um, so this is a continuity of, of the dominant ideology of liberalism that we're all equal, that everybody's equal that no voice is more powerful than anybody else's voice. I mean, you know, that used to be the case when we talked about, you know, in union politics, the companies against the workers, but you can apply that to women, you can apply that to children, you can apply that to our First Nations people. We're not all equal in terms of the influence we have or the voice we have. Um, and, you know, the, the trying to portray the leadership of the Yes campaign as being the elites of this country. Um, so, what's the alternative? Interesting, in Zen, we say not one and not two. In Zen, we talk about complementarity. You know, we, you know that um, the duck and the rabbit, the, the gestalt switch of the, the face and the bars, can't see one. You can only see one at the same time, but they're both aspects of the one reality. So in, 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 in Zen Buddhism and most other non-dual teachings, everything certainly is boundless and it's all one, no division, indivisible, limitless. But it's also differentiated and uh, Everything is also the one, but everything is unique. Every, every leaf on every tree, every, every being is unique as well. And we have to respect, respect that difference as well as the equality. And in the middle way, we're trying to get that middle way between equality and difference. 
And um, it, it, like the, this, this notion of unity within diversity is, is a bit hard to grasp for many people. Um, so we find ourselves arguing for unity at the expense of diversity. Or we can argue for difference at the expense of unity. But like we can fall into the ditch on either side of these two things. And I think, you know, the, this ideology of the No campaign founded upon the whitewashing of our history and the covering over of the truth, hence the need for truth telling. Another important reason why the, probably the referendum failed. And we have this notion in, um, in Buddhism uh, about spiritual bypassing, which is a really interesting notion. But I'm going to talk, I just twist that around a little bit and talk about collective spiritual bypassing in a sense. The, uh, the whitewashing of our history is a, is a kind of collective spiritual bypassing. So spiritual bypassing was a term that a guy called John Wellwood coined at the beginning of this century uh, to describe a process he saw happening in Buddhist communities he was in, and also within himself. Uh, and it, was a, it, it, it referred to the widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. You could also say the, the tendency to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved historical issues, you know, the, the atrocities that happened in our history. And when we are spiritually bypassing, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what he called premature transcendence, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully embraced and made peace with it. And I could say this notion of us all being one Australians and we're all equal is a kind of premature transcendence of our messy history. And we haven't, we haven't made peace with it. So we use that as a means of avoiding it. So spiritual bypassing is, is how we can split off from the messy world of humanity by focusing only on the transcendent spirit or the notion of oneness or we're all one Australians. We can cut ourselves off from respecting appropriate boundaries. And in, in Zen, Zen traditions equally, you know, during the Second World War, um, Zen masters would encourage those students to become kamikaze pilots. Uh, in this same way, spiritual bypassing, kamikaze meant literally divine wind. And we can also split off from our sexuality, our unwanted emotions. And from the historical point of view, we can avoid telling the truth about our history and whitewashing our history and deny the attempted genocide of First Nations peoples. Well, attempted the genocide of First Nations peoples. So where to from here? Well, I have to conclude it has to be education and truth-telling. I'll just finish with a quote by James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So I'll end the talk on that note, but we've got the time.